Did you ever think you would make it? I feel I'm so close I could take sweet victory. I know this life meant for me. Yeah, why would you bet on Goliath when we got bet David? Value taming, giving values contagious. This world of entrepreneurs, we can't no value the haters. How they run, homie, look what I become. I'm the, I'm the one. Okay, so if you've hit the gym today, by the time this podcast is done, your brain is going to have a workout because these two guys are some of the <laughs> sharpest guys online. Mm-hmm. When it comes down to talking economics, both of them have a big uh, YouTube podcast show. Uh, you'll find everywhere. One of them is George Gammon. I think, George, I've been on your show before yeah, a couple yeah. years ago. He's yeah. a renowned American real estate investor, entrepreneur, YouTuber, and teacher schooling macroeconomics. He uh, creates and stars in the Rebel Capitalist Show. He doesn't believe in capitalism. He believes in free market capitalism and, yeah. and the you, Fed. Buddy. It's Thank his uh, hat here. And then the other gentleman that's here with us is Ran. I was with Ran and Scaramucci. And who was the other gentleman that was with I us? I don't actually remember. It was Scaramucci. It, yeah. was, it was really good. Ma- it was Mark Yusko. It was Mark Yusko. We, we had a Yusko. really good time. And uh, I, like I said to you, a great host. Uh, he's a co-founder and CEO of OnChain Capital, a blockchain investment fund and advisory service. Uh, in 2017, he launched Crypto Trader, the world's first televised cryptocurrency show featured on CNBC. Today, he is the host and executive producer. The show has uh, had huge success and is the most viewed show on the channel today. His show is called Crypto, Crypto Banter. Banter. Yes. Yes. Crypto Banter and Rebel Capitalist. Thanks for coming on being on yeah, yeah, the Peabody Podcast. Thanks for having us. It's thanks. great to have you guys on. So wh- you live where? You're, you're based out of? South Africa, Cape Town. And you're mm-hmm. out of? Medellin. So neither one of you live in the States. No. I no. thought for sure you would live in California or no. Portland or New York or some <laughs> I blue had, states. I actually, I actually left South Africa a couple of years ago, came to live in the States, spent two years in New York, mm. spent a couple of months in Miami, and then went back to South Africa. That's, that's a story for another time. But, and you're not leaving. You're staying put. I may come to Florida. I, I, have, a, I have an affair with Florida. I have love, a love affair with Florida. I love Florida. So how, how about yourself, George? You're staying put. You're not moving. Medellin. Yeah, you know, I went there originally in 2014 just for investment opportunities, and uh, I saw the weather, perfect, food was amazing, people were awesome, salsa dancing. Yeah. Adam knows what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah and the I just, opportunity uh, to go with George to a uh, night out in Medellin, dinner, yeah. dinner and a movie. Is that, and, uh, is that the time you guys went to that uh, <laughs> church and the pastor was giving yeah, great yeah. pre- Praying exactly. only. Yeah, I, I heard only praying. It was a great time. Incredible message. Well, <laughs> look, you, exactly. for, 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 for guys who are, you know, uh, the guys that listen to the podcast, we haven't done a podcast since last Tuesday. Mm-hmm. It's been a crazy week. Maybe we'll talk about some of the stories. We had a great conversation on Thursday with someone. Maybe we'll uh, kind of get into it in a minute here. But more importantly today, I have so many stories I want to go through with you, with Tom, with Adam, with Rand, with all of you economy-wise. But if you don't mind for the audience that doesn't know you, of course, I give the intro here. But maybe take a minute and give your background of what you've done in the past, where you are today. Both of you will start with you first. Yeah, so I retired in 2012 uh, as an entrepreneur, a long-time entrepreneur. And I didn't know anything about the Fed, the yield curve, nothing about macro at all. But I knew that I wanted to invest my own money. I didn't want to delegate that to a financial planner. So I started studying, and the first uh, stuff that I came across, the first content I came across was Milton Friedman's Free to Choose series, going back to the 1970s and the 1980s, and that just like hit me like a bag of bricks. I mean, it just really, really resonated. So from there, I went to Thomas Sowell. I started studying guys like Jim Rogers and Doug Casey and Rick Rule and Peter Schiff. And I just became completely obsessed with it. And it became my passion. And then in 2019, I started the YouTube channel. And uh, that grew, for whatever reason, that grew very quickly. It still kind of amazes me that people actually want to see me talk in front of a camera. But for some reason, they do. And then we started another channel, uh, the Rebel Capitalist mm-hmm. channel, when the whole the name. the mandate thing came out, and I was really pushing back against that, and that channel was really set up and designed to do that. And uh, now we turn that into a podcast that's doing really well, and that's how I got to where I am today. We just had our live conference this past weekend where we had Schiff and Mike Maloney and Lynn Alden and uh, Snyder and Brent Johnson, a lot of Kiyosaki, people. Kiyosaki, you said. Kiyosaki was there. Yeah, and it's just become this, uh, this, this movement that I'm very proud of. I love it. I love the work you do. When, when your stuff pops up uh, and I'm listening to it, I get smarter by the time I'm done listening to what you have to say. Your views are very uh, – you're a good teacher in the way you explain things, and it's obvious why you're growing. How about yourself? Thank you. Um, typical entrepreneur story, I think. Uh, dot com raised money for an internet startup. 
I was supposed to start an online wealth management community, blew myself up in the dot-com bubble, went insolvent for the first time, uh, built myself up, built and sold the biggest uh, marketing and advertising agency in Africa, very big uh, acquisition in Africa, over $150 million, and um, then went into cryptocurrency full-time. And when I went into cryptocurrency, I, there was no information. I, just, I was looking for information in 2016 and 2017, and there was zero information. Somehow I convinced CNBC to let me run the world's first televised cryptocurrency investment show. And we went live. We ran the show for a couple of years. And then I realized that media and the way that CNBC were doing it is not the future of media. Mm -hmm. So I broke away and uh, started my own 24-7, 365 crypto media platform. You were talking 24-7. Mm. That's a lot of I was, work. I talk 24-7. Yeah. <laughs> no sleep. <laughs> In so, five minute break here. We'll be back. Exactly. Boom. Wife's break. Exactly. Well, you know how to do it, right? No, of course. I got four, too. Between the two of yeah. you, eight kids. Yeah. Me and George were at Between zero, the two I believe. Of you, you guys are on yeah. fire. We've got to catch up. Yeah. We've got to catch up. Yeah. So uh, today we run Crypto Banter, which is yeah. um, a crypto media channel, um, an amazing community. Um, we're building towards 24 7, 365 credible crypto streaming content. Uh, we do about five hours a day now. And yeah, very strong community. One of the most loyal communities in crypto. Um, having the time of our lives. I love it. Wow. I, listen, if you if you're if you're able to create content, have fun, and you're you have a different point of view, you will find the audience eventually. This, this game is a very honest game. If you don't do it right, they will tell you. If you do it right, they'll show up. I agree, and it's a, it's a ruthless game because if you yeah. don't do it right, you can get you can get canceled in a minute. Yeah. But I think more importantly for me. The first time that I built a business and I needed to exit, I was working with a goal in mind and I had something to prove. And this time, I'm actually just there because I'm having a lot of fun. And it's like, I can't imagine having more fun. I just can't imagine. Yeah. It's a very different mindset the second time around because you just do what you love and everything falls into place. And, and the first time around, you've always got something to prove. So. I got to tell you, it's very impressive that you have four kids and you're only 27 years old. Like, I, I couldn't believe it. But I respect you for it. You started early and it is what it is. So how about we get into some story? We've got a lot of them to cover, uh, cover here. Uh, since you guys are all uh, uh, a lot of economy, we got a lot of economy stories to get into. Let's start off with jobless claims from Fox Business. And then we'll do some Musk with the new CEO. We'll talk about Tesla stock. We'll talk about U.S. Treasuries, inflation, Apple's new card, Jamie Dimon with the debt default that people are concerned about, Bud Light parent company stock downgraded by HSBC. We'll talk some blockchain. We'll talk some Federal Reserve with the Fed now. Uh, and some other stories in the back is what we'll get into with CNN, Chris Licht, CNN Town Hall. We haven't responded to the CNN Town Hall president, a bunch of other things. Let's start off with... Uh, Jobless claim rise sharply to highest level since 2021. Again, this is a Fox business story. Uh, let's see this here. The number of Americans filing for unemployment benefits last week reached the highest level since 2021, with initial claims surging to, uh, by 22,000 to 264. This figure is well above the pre-pandemic average of 218 claims. And marks the sharpest level of jobless claims since October 2021. Continuing claims, which represent Americans continuously receiving unemployment benefits, rose slightly to 1.81 million, indicating a potential cooling off in the historically tight labor market. Economists anticipate further increases in unemployment as a result of rising interest rates, leading to potential reductions in consumer and business spending. The Fed's projections suggest that officials expect the unemployment rate to rise above 4.6% by the end of next year, up from a current 3.5%. This could result in over 1 million job losses by the end of this year. Tom, what are your thoughts on this story? Well, this is exactly what the Fed wanted to cause, is with um, whether they're the direct cause of it or it's now we're going through a cycle uh, because we had overhired in uh, 20 and 21. But this is what the Fed wants to see, is rising unemployment. And jobless claims is where it starts. What's really interesting is right now the employment unemployment rate, according to government, is 3.4%. And so that's 5.7, almost five and three quarter million people unemployed officially. But then we have this 1.9 million jobless claims in there. So when you look at this and say that the last week 
the week's claims is 264,000. That's like 25% of the current jobless claims. So it looks like this is inflating. LinkedIn came out, yet another tech company just laid off a little under 1,000 people. And the list of tech layoffs, we had a couple sheets in here, it was just incredible. Morgan Stanley, 3,000, 3M, 6,000. To name a couple companies that were outside tech, the headlines have been tech layoffs, but it's all, it's all coming. And people have been asking, what does this mean? Does this mean the recession is here? Remember, that's what they're mm-hmm. asking. Does this mean that he keeps interest rates flat in June when he gets along? And we found an interesting chart here really quick. Malik, do you have the blue bars? <laughs> Malik. <laughs> Just and to give some got- context to what Tom's talking about, when you said this is what the Fed wanted, I believe you were referencing the showdown almost between uh, Jerome Powell and Senator Kennedy of Louisiana when they had a little thing going on, his character we're talking about. That's Here's exactly what the Fed is talking right. about. You're saying you yeah, want exactly. the joblessness to go up. You want people to be upset and out of work. Yeah, once yeah. you can kind of get past the almost like uh, Wiley Coyote-looking thing. Is, what do you think about well, this first and foremost, plan. he's talking about something called the Phillips curve. So back in the Phillips curve, they had this idea where there was an inverse relationship between the inflation rate and the unemployment rate. So if, if the unemployment was low, uh, then inflation would be high. And if the unemployment, as the unemployment rate got higher, then inflation should come back down. That was totally debunked in the 1970s, but for some reason that's still part of their playbook. Now, one thing I'd also point out about jobs, if you go back a couple weeks or last uh, Friday, I think it was, the non-farm payroll came out with this blowout number Right, but then they also revised the prior two months down by like 150,000 jobs. And I also saw a chart on Twitter that was very interesting. This chart was how many consecutive months that the actual number exceeded expectations, and it went back, let's say, 20 years. Right, and the most uh, it, it got up to was about four or five months consecutively where the actual number exceeded expectations. Now we're on 13. Hmm. 13. I mean, it literally goes off the charts. But what they do is they've been revising down every single month prior. You see? So when you think about it, it seems like what they're doing is they're coming out with a blowout number just to make the administration look good. And then the next month, they're just revising it because they know that no one will pay attention to that and they'll just sweep it under the rug. So if you look at the revisions as the actual number, then they jive a lot more with this story that you're reporting on than the actual headline non-farm payroll. So it's very suspicious, to say the least. I love that you use the word suspicious because I completely agree with you. And I also saw the... you, sounds like you're reading it the same way I was. About two months ago, they had gone in and revised uh, the definition of seeking work, and it was mm-hmm. actually 5.1 million were 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 had quote given up, and so they pulled them out of the 166 million total workforce that they estimate. Right? Yeah. 62 percent participation rate, about 166 million people in the workforce, and they, what they did, they pulled it out. But if you put the two together and you doubled it, the unemployment rate instead of being at that point four would have still been closer to seven and three quarters yeah yeah and and the birth death model correct i I don't know if you saw that but i I don't know if you guys want me to explain that but there's something there's a uh, an adjustment for the headline non-farm payroll it's just birth death so what they try to do it's not human beings it's businesses so what they try to do is Mm. guess how many businesses were started and how many businesses failed within that time frame and then since that's, I don't know why they can't report, but for some reason those brand new businesses can't report, so they have to guess as to how many jobs were actually created based on how many LLCs came into existence. And what's odd is they just assume that every single LLC that's created has X amount of employees. And you know, Get as an entrepreneur... That's how that, they're guesstimating? Yeah, yeah. That's, one of the re- that's one of the ways they do that. And so I, I saw a lot of people that I follow on Twitter that I'm friends with that, that are very, very smart. Yeah. And they took out that adjustment for the birth death model. And then if you do that, then it was basically zero and it was much, much lower, which will most likely next month get uh, revised even lower than that headline number. So it's all this kind of financial engineering, so to speak, that's making the jobs numbers look as, as good as they can. And keep in mind, that's the only thing that the Fed and the central planners and the Janet Yellen types have to say, hey, look at how great the economy is. Because every single other metric that they have, that even the Fed said like a year ago, that this is how you tell if we're in a recession. I'm referring to something called a near-term forward spread. 
I can I can explain that if you'd like me to. But they used to say, well, this is what you have to look at. This is what you have to look at. Until that inverted, and they're like, uh, no, don't look at that anymore. Look at yeah, that. What do we see right? here? Yeah, look what at what do we see now? Rate. So this <laughs> but, is all they've got left is the unemployment rate, and that's why they might be kind of using these types of financial well, shenanigans. Pat, speaking of suspicious, remember we we did this on the podcast uh, two weeks ago, how Biden created. 10 million new jobs, whatever the crazy number was, Rob, you probably have the link, but it turned out it was just people who basically were fired during COVID and then just got their jobs back. These aren't really yeah, created yeah, jobs. So it sounds like but what, what you can inflate a lot of these expect? numbers. What do we expect? We, I mean, it, it, it follows the process. You first increase interest rates. We've had the fastest interest rate increases since, since anyone can remember. Naturally, that's going to bring down inflation because spending is the first thing that stops. And only after spending stops do people stop hiring people. And so the job numbers are coming down. They are manipulated. Yeah, and but they I think lag. And they lag. They lag. But I think more mm -hmm. importantly, I think this is, this is probably the more important thing. The Fed's mandate is based on a, a, a concept which was debunked. So the Fed's mandate is based on inflation and unemployment. That's, that's what the, the Fed looks at. And if you've been looking at what Jerome Powell has been doing and saying, no matter what happens around it, no matter what we think about the banking collapse or whatever else, we're focused on inflation and we're focused on unemployment. And that's really where the, the focus area is. And I think that the mandate of the Fed for this kind of scenario is probably wrong. And I mean, I like this in the, in the Fed, but I think the mandate needs to be redefined. Yeah. And another thing that's interesting, we're uh, on the topic of unemployment, is um, one of the presentations from this weekend, a good friend of mine, Jeff Snyder, who's probably the smartest guy I've ever met. Uh, he looks at those curves, like the near-term forward spread, which is basically the current three-month Treasury yield uh, minus the, the, the three-year Treasury yield that the market expects in 18 months based on a variety of factors. The priced in. The, yeah, well, the yield. Right. So you look yeah. at the th current three-month yield compared to what the market is predicting the three-month yield will be in 18 months, and then you subtract that. And right now, there's like a 200 basis point inversion so what the market is saying is that they're predicting in 18 months or within that time frame, the two-year, or excuse me, the uh, three-month Treasury yield will be 200 basis points lower than it is today. So then he said, you got to sit back and ask yourself, what does that mean? What, what, what if, if the if the, the uh, three-month Treasury yield goes down by that much? What would the economic environment have to look like, and where would the Fed have to have interest rates? as a result of that economic environment. And some of the conclusions that he came to is he thought that unemployment would be at double digits by the end of this year. Double digits, double, unemployment. So, double digits, oh. and he thought that based on that and based on the yield curve, the normal yield curve and the near-term forward spread and, and the, the Eurodollar futures curve and whatnot, that the Fed would most likely be at 0% by the end of this year. Well, George, what you're thing? saying is pretty shocking. You're saying it's at three and a half percent now by the no, end no, of the no, year. No, 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 it's not at three. No, no, the Fed funds is right now. Oh, I thought you were talking about unemployment rate. Well, yeah, I am. I'm sorry. I'm okay, talking gotcha. about unemployment as well. So unemployment goes from three point five percent to double digits. Yeah. By the end of this year, and the recession that's producing that causes the Fed to take rates, Fed funds, yeah. down from let's say five percent all the way back down to zero percent. And that that and then think about what type of economy. Think about the banking crisis. Mm -hmm. Think about the black swan event that we would have to have in order for the Fed to drop rates that quickly. And another thing that I would add, there's a, a big psychological component here, right? Because you guys, if you study history, you guys know that history remembers Paul Volcker very well. Mm -hmm. It does not remember Arthur Burns well. Right. And he was the Fed chair that preceded Paul Volcker. Everyone thinks that he didn't have the balls, basically, to take interest rates high enough to break the back of inflation. And sure enough, Paul Volcker comes in and he had the huevos to get in there and do what needed to be done, even though it was very unpopular. So if you're Jerome Powell, who do you want to be remembered as? Obviously, Paul Volcker. So from a psychological standpoint, that puts him in a place where if he's going to err on one side or the other, He's going to err on the side of taking rates too high. But you see, the market knows that. And even when you include that psychological component, they still are betting that he's going to take rates almost down to zero or around that uh, area they, by the they, end of this they year. They Snyder? They no, the, the market. The market. Because well, if you look at how the market is placing their bets, the, 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 the bond market, as an example, 
That's what they're saying is going to come to fruition. And the bond market is the smart money. I mean, if you look at just the basic yield curve with the two-year treasury and the 10-year treasury, you can take that all the way back to 1950s. And that has almost 100% accuracy. When that inverts, you 99% of the time, you get a recession. Now, what's interesting is right now it's still inverted. So the two-year treasury yield is higher than the 10-year treasury. But the stuff doesn't hit the fan when the curve is inverted. It hits the fan when the curve is no longer inverted. And what usually happens is you have a bad inverter. When the uh, yield curve steepens, you have a bad steepener and a good steepener. The bad steepener is when the two-year goes back down below the 10-year. And almost always that's a result of the Fed dropping rates as a result of some sort of crisis situation. So those people that think that if the Fed drops rates, the stock market's going to rip higher, that unfortunately they're on the wrong side of history. And they might get a, a, a rude awakening, to say the least. The bond market is right more often than the Fed narrative is right. And if you're looking at what the, and the Fed, yield curve is almost always right. Always right. And if you look at what the Fed narrative is now, the Fed narrative is now we're going to continue raising until the data until the data says otherwise. But I think Paul Tudor Jones was on CNBC today, and he said, "I wish they would say something what, what like what they really wanted to say." So I'm not a big I'm not a big believer in the black swan event, which you which you spoke about. But I do think that there is something else that threatens the job market and could cause mass unemployment. And I don't think it's going to happen in the next three to six months, but I do think it's going to happen in the next 12 to 18 months. And that's AI. So I think no one is, is forecasting for the dramatic change that AI is going to have on people's jobs. Because right now it's just chatbots and we're seeing the beginning of it. But remember that AI te- technologically does that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's going to cause a lot of people to lose their jobs. And I don't think we've recreated the jobs, the new jobs as quickly as we're going to lose the old jobs. And I think that's a big thing that we've got to look out for. As I say, I don't think it's three to six months from here, but I do think that 12 to 18 months from here, we've we've got a massive jobs problem and we're going to have a lot of unemployed people. Yeah, but you you layer that on top of the $21 trillion time bomb, which is commercial real estate. I mean, let's not forget about that. We see Silicon Valley Bank going bust or Signature, all these regionals. Well, who do you think finances all these commercial real estate deals? And and keep in mind when you I mean you know this when you do a commercial real estate deal to buy a forty story building or something like that, you're not getting a thirty year fixed rate mortgage. You're taking that out with maybe two year debt, maybe five year debt. And within the next, uh, I think it's within the next two years. You guys might know. I think it was like two to two point five trillion dollars worth of commercial real estate that needs to be rolled over debt, right? So if you think about where you got that debt to begin with was these regionals, and they're all going bust. So when you go back to that regional bank, you think that they're going to be chomping at the bit to give you a loan? Absolutely not. And that just blew a hole in their balance sheet. So if you can even get a loan, there's going to be a massive risk premium on there. In other words, the interest rate is going to be extremely high as your cash flow has gone down because your occupancy rates have right. gone down. The cap rates have gone down because the treasuries have gone up in yield. And that's going to, you know, cap rates are going to follow treasuries because that's a competing asset class. So basically, you have your expenses going way, way up. If you can even get debt to roll over and your income is going way, way down, your equity is going down because cap rates are going up. And this creates a whole big problem. I mean, personally, I don't think that we're over the banking crisis. I think we're probably in inning two or three. Inning two or three. Yeah, and you look at Europe, and the commercial real estate is just as bad over there. Yeah. So, I mean, they started with Credit Suisse, but I wouldn't be well, there's surprised. nowhere to go. Three years ago, you For look commercial up, real estate, I agree that we're yeah. inning, inning, inning two or three. Yeah, and it's, it's, yeah. it's going to be pretty bad yeah. because you look back at two years ago, and what paper did I have at LIBOR plus X? Now look where LIBOR is. It's impossible to refi. I can't refi it. And my asset value just is... is Pick a city is taking anywhere from what, 17 to 33% down in the U.S. market on cities. We saw that building in San Francisco had a, uh, it's got a $330 million asset value on a bunch of paper that's underneath that building, and they were expecting it to go sub 100 in yeah, a 60 million. Yeah, they're just going to give the keys back to the bank. I was reading a statistic the other day that if you combined all the occupancy in New York City, you'd have 34 Empire State buildings. Hmm. And think about that. What a statistic. Yeah. But it does mean that we're getting to the end of the tightening cycle. 
And then it does mean that we're going to get into a, a, an easing cycle much quicker than yeah, the but, Fed's letting but on. but let's not forget the interest rate fallacy that Milton Friedman points out, that when interest rates are low, that means usually that means money's tight. And well, for a lot of small businesses, that means the interest rate's infinity. Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know I, I, hear, saying, I hear you, I hear you, but I hear you, but we're getting to the end of the cycle. We're seeing real we're seeing jobless claims start going up. We're seeing real estate starting to starting to come down, mm -hmm. and that's usually the end of the cycle and the beginning of the new cycle. So I think that the tightening cycle, certainly in my opinion, is is oh the done. tightening cycle. You're saying yeah, yeah. yeah that, that I think it's sense. I think it's close to done. I agree with Paul Tudor Jones. I know you guys had it up there, but um, I agree with Paul Tudor Jones, and I think it's close to done. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Tom, were you well, going to say something? Yeah, the period at the end of the sentence is I wanted to step back from the numbers and manipulated numbers. I really want to know what the consumer thought. So I dug in, and I found I found this, if we can go to it now, the uh, blue bars. And what it did is it broke up the generations right now, and then it said, okay, what do these generations feel about job security? Well, if you run a national poll, 53% of people in America are not wor worried at all about job security. Then you peel back the onion. 82% of boomers close to retirement or fighting the last inning of their own uh, financial war, 82% that they're not worried about job security. Until you get to Gen Z and millennials, only 25% of Gen Z and 37% of millennials and 48% of Gen X are feeling good about job security. So you forget about the manipulated, you know, uh, unemployment figures that we're talking about and go look at what the common man, this was a broad-based survey. And this tells you, it tells me that what the average worker is feeling is that the younger generations, you know, the ones that extorted the 20% raises during COVID yeah, yeah, yeah. Are, are suddenly feeling a little yeah. different about job security, but this is all directly connected. Well, you know, to it. This, this reminds me of a, a video I did the other day on these buy now, pay later loans. I don't know if you guys saw this. Oh, it's a firm, it, fintech companies and others like them. No, just how many people right now, how many Americans are using buy now, pay later? For, they said 44% of Americans said that they will likely have to use a buy now, pay later loan within the next six months. And then that survey broke down, you know, what do you think you'll need that buy now, pay uh, later loan for? And so 44% of Americans said that. And of the, the 44%, 21% said that they needed to buy groceries. Jesus. Well, I mean, here's a story that you're yes. talking about, right? Americans are spending big <clears throat> with credit cards. Uh, here's what that means for the possibility of a recession, CNBC story. Consumer spending accounts for more than half of the economy, making it a significant factor in maintaining economic stability. Kurt Long Chief economist at National Association of uh, Federally Insured Credit Unions stated, if consumer spending is strong, that alone is, generally speaking, enough to keep the economy from slipping into a recession. In the first quarter of 2023, GDP showed a modest growth of 1.1% uh, compared to the previous quarter. The improvement from the mid-2022 uh, GDP figures, which initially raised recession concern, can be attributed to consumer spending. Consumers are spending... Despite rising prices leading to a decline in personal savings, many Americans, particularly those with lower incomes, are increasingly relying on credit cards for their day-to-day -day expenses. Bank of America Institute economists reported that roughly 29% of household earnings, earning less than 50000 a year, are using credit cards for spending, 29%. Right. Additionally, the average tax refund has decreased, negatively impacting spending for household that rely on, on refunds. Yeah. So when, when you're in a situation like this and you're seeing data and then you're looking at the stock market, market's doing okay, nothing crazy is going on, and you're like, well, you know, I guess we're kind of recovering. Everything's going back to normal. And you're like, well, you know, real estate's not really dropping that much. Yeah, maybe a little bit of movement. Yeah, it's gone down maybe 5, 10, 15 points in certain markets. But no one's still selling their house because they know if I sell the house, I still have to go buy a house to similar price and I'm not going to go out there and try risking fine. So maybe it's not as bad as it is. And then there's the other side that's saying, listen, it's not as bad as it is. They're expecting a recession Q4, Q1 of next year. It's coming 10% unemployment, et cetera. They kind of like what you were talking about. And there's a third party that says, yeah, it's going to be soft landing. Man. It's not going to be as bad as people think it is. Things you have to worry about is AI. You got to worry about the, the debt, the default, the election, the real. There's so many different things going on, more important in the economy. The economy stuff about fear porn, it's not real. They're just trying to scare you for eyeballs. What do you say to those people? There's two words, yield curve. 
That's it. So what I mean by that is... I know know what you mean by that. Talk to a person that doesn't consume financial uh, content all day. The regular person sitting at home, they're 35 years old, makes 82 grand a year, household income 130, 135. They're like, George, what are you talking about? Explain to me what I should be worried about and shouldn't be worried about. Yeah, so let's go back to 2020. Okay. Let's go back to March. Yep. And we all know what happened in March, you know, we thought the world was going to That's end. Right. So around that time, the Fed funds was right around 1%. Now, they were supposed to meet on a Wednesday and they had an emergency meeting on the Sunday prior. And they met that night and they came out and announced that they were going to drop rates right down to zero. So from 1% down, they're going to drop it by 100 basis points. And they were going to commit to basically QE infinity. And they were going to commit to doing up to a trillion dollars a day in the repo market. So just providing that type of liquidity, kind of the, the oil, of the, the lubricant mm-hmm. of the financial system. Well, the very next day, the stock market went down by about 1,500 points. And it continued to go down until we got the CARES Act, where you had this fiscal stimulus, and then the market started to go back up. But my point is that the Fed dropped rates by 100 basis points. Boom, right? Why? Because we thought the world was coming to an end. So what these curves are telling us right now, and they're almost always right, is that the Fed is going to do that again by the end of 2023. But this time, they're not going to drop from 1% to 0%. This time, they're going to drop from 5%, maybe not all at one time, but they're going to drop from 5% down to 0% or close to that, right? So think about that. If they had to drop by 100% because of COVID, because the world is coming to an end, what does the world look like if they're dropping by 400 basis points or 500 basis points? Tell us, Mm. what does it look like? What does it look like? It looks like worse than what we saw in 2020. It looks like worse than the GFC. Unpack that. It Unpack. looks okay. So it looks like unemployment just going up past double digits. I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know about twenty twenty three, but going into twenty twenty four, I would not be surprised if unemployment got north of fifteen percent. Fifteen percent. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that you're looking at a, a over the long period of time because the, the residential real estate doesn't crash. Uh, it slowly goes down over time. I mean, it peaked out in 2006, and we didn't see a bottom until 2012 when you adjust for inflation. And you can see that real price decline as nominal prices are flat if we have a certain degree of inflation. But I think that over the long, you know, the next five or six years, you're going to see real estate really come down. Commercial real estate, I think, might crash. But then you're looking at the S&P going down by, you know, 30, 40 Fifty percent, and we have to real. Another thing to keep in mind here is tax receipts, Patrick, because you know that the government is spending like a, a drunken sailor mm-hmm. will say, right? So they have this huge deficit, and if we go into recession, what are they going to do? They're going to have to increase deficit spending, because this is monetary heroin. And what I mean by that is, if you do five trillion of deficit spending to cover COVID, you, you just you, you have to keep doing more and more and more and more to get the exact same result. So let's say this time they have to do 10 trillion in deficit spending, right? Okay, well, let's also keep in mind that tax receipts are not a derivative of tax rates. That is total nonsense. Because you go back to the 1940s, regardless of whether the rate has been 90% or 25%, they still get about 18% of, 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 of GDP as far as tax revenue, right? But now, especially since the economy has been so financialized since the 1980s and 1990s, now tax receipts are really tied to the stock market. And what we have seen, and this we can talk about this, I was talking about this with Lynn last night, is this blow up in the one month treasury, where the other day it went up in one day by 100 basis points. I mean, you never see that type of volatility, ever. And this most likely was a result of the government coming out that day and saying, hey, guess what? Not only do we have this debt ceiling crisis, but all that tax money that you thought we were going to get, we're not getting that. Because asset prices haven't gone down this or up this year. They've gone down this year. And so if we have this recession, if those the market goes down by that much, tax receipts are going to go down by that much as well at a time when the government is having to spend more than they did during uh, COVID to try to patch this hole, right? 
And then, then who is buying these treasuries? You know, at the short end, you might have a buyer, but the long end, you know, do, do we go into a recession where interest rates are actually going up at the long end? I mean, these are all you know, questions you know, that we need to think uh, through. So, by the way, the last time, uh, uh, did somebody say something? No, I was, I was going to say, oh, okay. I, don't, I don't share such a gloomy view, to be honest. L- let me, well, let me say my, this, and then I want to come Let me, let me it's, say it's this. It's just the yield curves view. I'm yeah. coming to you next. So last time we hit 15% was 1940, 14.6%. We got up there. We got, got close to that COVID. Yeah, we, I mean, but you can't really count COVID because COVID to me is, uh, is uh, I understand what you're saying. But COVID to me was a complete different, uh, you know, black swan that we went through. Non-black swan, 1940. But you're okay. talking about unemployment? Is that unemployment, what you're okay. okay. 14.6%, yeah. yes. What did I say? Did I say something? No, no, no I just yeah. was clear. Yeah, unemployment, 14.6%. In, in COVID, so, the entire hospitality industry was told to stay yeah. home. That's yeah, artificial. so, so, so this, this is the part. I really, I'm really curious to know, George, Ryan, your thoughts, and then Tom, you as well, is... Here's the difference where, where I uh, uh, become a little bit skeptical of my own uh, 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 trends that I look at and I say, this should move this, that should move this, this should get destroyed, this should come up. The last three years, it's been a little out of whack that the stuff that moves another thing doesn't move it anymore. So why is that? What is the difference between 1940 and today? Here's the difference that I see, and I, I want you to push back. And, and find a, a leak in my argument. 1940, we were on the gold standard. You couldn't really manipulate that much. You were still protected by the gold standard. As much as you wanted to manipulate, you know, and kind of play the game, you couldn't fully, you could do it. Don't get me wrong. Joseph Kennedy mastered it in 20s, and he caused the whole 1929, all that stuff, fine. But you still had a certain level of, the Fed still had a certain level of accountability to what they could do and what they couldn't do. Post, you know, 1972, 73, gold standard, we're off of it, Nixon, whether you agree with it or not, you know, to where we are today. Today, these guys have more levers to control and manipulate and play with than ever before. They're like, yeah, you know what, we're going to kind of go like this. Yeah, we're kind of going to go like this. Like the whole thing with the default. Like, you know, could we really default? Back in the days, every time we wanted to spend something, and this is this is like a little over 100 years ago, you had to avoid it, you know, report it line by line. Then all of a sudden it becomes what? No, let's just let's just increase the debt limit and let us do whatever we want to do with the money because we need it. And then you know what? Now we make it political. Now it becomes divisive. So I think they have so many different things to manipulate to put temporary band-aids on a catastrophic event that they could delay. That each time you're like, yeah, they delayed it for five more years. Yeah, they delayed it for five more years. Yeah, they delayed it for ten more years. Do you agree or do you disagree with the fact that they have more manipulation today than before? Oh, absolutely. And I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that there's a high probability that they default. If we even if, you know if we go to this debt ceiling, I think that's going to be resolved uh, for sure. Isn't it always resolved? Yeah, yeah it's, it's I, almost. I'm less resolved. concerned about the default. We'll get into that story. I'm more concerned about 15% unemployment Q1 of 2024. Yeah, but so what, what you're saying is what Jerome Powell was saying is that hey, I've got the tools for this. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. okay. Did he have the tools for Silicon Valley Bank? He came out and created that new uh, facility. I forgot what it's called, the bank fund lending facility or something like that. Uh, but then what did we have? Then we had First Republic. You see what happens? Every single time they come out and say that I've got a tool, for, you know, we've got the tools. Don't worry, Adam. We've got the tools. But the f- then you the have tool another bank to- blow up. Say, oh well, I'm uh, actually got to create more tools. But it was, but what it, it was more always to protect the, the insured, though. It was, it was to protect the the depositor, the depositor not the. No, they no, no, never no, no. said they're, they're going to protect the bank. No, no, Equity no, no, holders the, no, got no, wiped out. No, no, no. The, the, the Fed set up a, a, a facility so that those banks could unload those assets off their balance sheet at 100 cents on the dollar. Well, they could borrow against it. They couldn't unload them. They could borrow well, that, against them at 100 percent of yeah, the dollar. I, but they, they would have to repay the loan. So that, it's not, yeah, it's but, not but, offloading. But, well, if they had a, a deposit flight, they could get those assets. They could get 100 cents on the dollar. Yeah. They could borrow. 100 cents on the dollar for the face value of those assets, Correct. which they thought was their problem. But then you had First Republic. It right? didn't solve that problem. So what I'm saying is the Fed thinks they can solve these problems, but, but they're way behind the curve. And if they weren't behind the curve, they wouldn't have to do 45 rounds of quantitative easing, as an example. You know, that's an example of their tool that they just have to do over and over and over again. Well, if it's so powerful, why do they have to do it 45 times? And if they've got all the tools for this, why do we still have these blowups? when they have to create another tool. You see, the problem here is the, the, the global monetary system's broken. And if, you, if it wasn't broken, you wouldn't have a Silicon Valley bank. You know, why couldn't they go to the discount window? Why couldn't they go to the repo market? 
Why couldn't they use all of these free market solutions? Well, not the discount window, but the repo market. Why couldn't they use these free market solutions where the other banks would give them the liquidity they need? Because there's too much counterparty risk in the system, because all the banksters know that the system's broken. And the only person that's willing to come in and clean up the mess is JP Morgan if they unload the risk of the asset side of the balance sheet they're incorporating onto the taxpayer. And they say, oh, by the way, in order for us to do this deal, we're going to have to borrow $50 billion from the taxpayer. And I don't know if you read that story, but they took an immediate gain of $2.6 million, mm -hmm. and they're projected to make $500 million a year on that deal. J.P. Morgan is. And he didn't even have any out-of-pocket cost to do the deal. And he said, FDIC, you've got to insure 80% of the losses that I incur if I absorb this balance sheet. I mean, it's just like it's it's a it's, freebie, but you, yeah. you see my point. But it's FDIC assisted. It's FDIC, FDIC assisted rescue packages, which means the taxpayer is funding assisting J.P. Morgan and the bigger banks in rescuing the smaller banks. That's what that's what it is. Well, rescuing. I, I not rescuing. I'd sorry, call it a Christmas to, gift. To, to, yeah, taking taking over. <laughs> but that goes back to my question, though. That goes back to my question that. They will use every lever today because there is no accountability to manipulate any data point they want. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So you go back to COVID yeah. and everyone said, what you're saying is that there's a Fed put. There's a Fed put, George. So we shouldn't worry about it because they can kick the can further down the road. That's the argument. That's what seems to be happening year well, after year. I'm saying year. that in COVID, you could see that the Fed put expired because the Fed tried to come in with their put and the market kept crashing. It just said, you know what? The Fed put's done. How long we did it crash, though? What was it? Probably a week, a week. or two. Yeah, it was a I mean, week. But that, but that, but it, but it kept crashing until mm, the government came out. That's the point. we okay. So then we go from a a Fed put to a government put. So the question now becomes: Can the government act the same way that the uh, Fed did? And if we are in an environment where inflation is zero percent, or they're worried about deflation. The answer would most likely be yes, assuming that the Democrats and the Republicans could get along. Who knows, right? But if we're in an environment where inflation is extremely high, you know, is the public going to have the stomach for the Biden or any administration to come out and say, yes, we're going to do another $5 trillion when they realize that that $5 trillion created this inflation come that on. they're having to suffer through now? You think the public's going to say no to it? You think the public's going to say no to it? They're going to say yes. They're going to open up their arms yeah. and say drop, yeah. drop the stimulus. I mean, it's not. It, it, look, this is why the, the 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 system that we have in America, in a way, it's broken because there's no such thing as earning the right to vote. Anybody, if you allow the majority to vote, this was a republic. Gradually, is becoming more of a democracy where the individual is not protected from the majority. It's a complete different concept of what America was truly founded for. That's my concern. My concern is. There's way too many levers to bullshit the real economy and put a big-ass band-aid so everybody thinks, oh, things are great, guys. Let's go ahead and get reelected, like even before midterms. What happened pre-midterms? Uh, let's use our uh, w w all the stuff that we've been having for oil and all that in our reserve. Guys, dump it. Dump it. Use all of it. Use all of it. Yeah, what do you mean use all of it? Reserve. Use all of it. Uh, $6. $5.50. $5.450. Did you notice how in the last midterms, it's supposed to be a red wave. Boom. It's not. What happened? Well, we, we fixed the economy. Month later, back to the same shit again. So the, the, the point I'm trying to make to you isn't I disagree with you. Mm -hmm. I think we should be at 15%. I think the mess that we have should be a 15%. Got to clean out the system. But, but we have created zero, George, zero accountability where we allow these guys to get away with murder because whoever controls the knob yep. controls what they can do to delay the current issue. That's my concern. Yeah. We're aligned on the same page. I'm worried who's controlling the knob. That's yeah, my Remember that, that, before the elections, there was the recession. And then the definition of a recession was two two quarters. Yeah. <laughs> negative. Quarters of but then yeah. they had it two quarters. And that. then they said, no, no, no. But that's not that's not a recession. That's not the definition of a recession. It's Okay, give us what the definition of a recession is. Well, that's not the definition of a recession. That, that was the, the yeah. manipulation. Yeah. The other big manipulation is marking, not having to mark T-bills to market. In other words, not you know when the interest rate goes up, Mm -hmm. Not having to reduce the value of your holding on your balance sheet if you're holding government treasury bills. Or mortgage-backed. Right? Or mortgage-backed securities. Now, what that means is that it's, that is manipulation. That is as if, you're, if I buy a property today and I buy the property today for a million dollars and then the interest rate goes up and the property is only worth $600,000. 
If I say that I'm going to hold the property until the end of the mortgage, mm. then you don't have to write it down. And that's manipulation because you don't know as a bank when, you're, when, you're de- when your depositors are going to want their money back. And when that happens, you're going to have to sell these mortgage-backed securities or these T-bills to honor that. Yeah. And so the biggest manipulation and the biggest scam was not having to mark these things down. Basically a counting trip where they were able to put a, an account called hold to maturity is, is what mm-hmm. he's referring to. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it is, it's a very good point. All they had to do was say, we're going to hold these T-bills till maturity and you could write them at the value of maturity, even though the value had decreased by 40%. Mm. So a million dollar T-bill, if you held a million dollar T-bill for 10 years, it was on your balance sheet at $1 million. Even though if you wanted to sell it in the open market today, you would get six or $700,000 for it. Mm. Because you said you were going to hold it to maturity. But if your depositors came and knocked on the door and said, we want our deposits back, well, you only got $600,000. You got to sell it. That is the manipulation. Yeah, and that's why the Fed fed up the facility. Correct. Can I ask you guys a question? And this is kind of to Pat's point. Let me just be clear about the question. You're basically saying the system's broken. We got to... Would you say end the Fed over here? Pat's basically saying somebody needs to be the bad guy. We're almost on a steroid or a heroin trip right now. Right now, yeah. we're inflating the economy. My question is, we know that the administration, whether it's the current uh, Democratic administration under Biden or whether it's Trump, they don't want to be the bad guy because why? They'll not get reelected mm. after the election cycle. So who needs to be the bad guy to get us out of this mess? Is the, if the system is broken, is it the Fed? Is it the, it's I, the secretary? Who is it, it going to be? I think it goes back to Pat's point. Uh, that usually the way these things end is just slowly and gradually. Uh, the politicians try to kind of dodge responsibility. And the people that end up holding the bag are the poor and middle class. And that's what's very – because you know, if you go through what Pat is saying, okay, they come out with more fiscal. That kicks the can down the road. But that doesn't mean that it fixes the economy. Ever. The economy continues to get worse because, Can like, I give like, you- like as an example, if you go back to to purchasing power, right? We have had nominal wages go up, but if you look at the actual real wages since 2019, they've gone down. When you adjust for inflation, yeah, they're getting destroyed. That's right. So we're, we're eliminating you, middle even America. Though, yeah. Even though you get these stimmy yeah. checks, yeah. let's say they do t- uh, UBI next, yeah, right, yeah. to try to fix the problem. Yeah. Well, yes, I agree with you that the poor and middle class are going to say, "Yeah, let's take that, let's take that, let's take that." I think, but that- unfortunately, it's going to make them uh, uh, worse off over the long run because they're always the ones going to have to pay the price. But if you're making 40, 50 grand a year and someone wants to send you money, you're never going to say no. We had the same conversation with Andrew Yang. But you know know what's crazy? Let me tell you. So so let's talk as capitalists here, okay, who have have somewhat won the business game. We're doing okay for ourselves, right? Okay, there's a community that'll say, well, that's easy for you to say. Because you made your money and now you got all the money exactly. and you want them to go because you want to see the market crash and all this other stuff because that's how you're going to yeah. make the money. First of all, a true free market capitalist is going to do good in a good market, a bad market, a terror. It doesn't matter. They're going to excel. So if you print more money and you send $5 trillion through the economy, I'm going to make money. Why? Because low and middle income families don't know how to spend money. It still comes to us. Yeah. If you don't give the money and you hold these politicians accountable, we're going to go through a season where all the fake capitalists are going to be filtered out, and they're going to go out there and work for a true capitalist. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to have some real people that are doing it the right way, operate companies. And then people are going to say, I want to work there. I want to work there. Quite frankly, all these banks that are going out of business, you buy long-term 64%, 63% of your assets are sitting in that, and rates are being called, and a JP Morgan sitting on 14%, whatever their numbers was, 14 15%. Some of you guys are playing the risky game, and guess what? You shouldn't be in business. There's guys that should be out of business. So for those that fall into this trap of, well, the rich people want the recession to hit, nobody wants the recession to hit. Nobody wants the uh, money to be printed. We simply want accountability. Accountability gets rid of fake players in the game. There's way too many fake players in this game, and nobody knows who's who. It's yeah. gonna You're some not going to get accountability because I'm going I'm to explain to you how it works. I live in, in South Africa. In South Africa, we used to have a, gr- a reasonable economy. Today, we have 10 hours a day of no electricity. Okay, You, you have mm. to understand, we have 10 hours a day every single day where the government switches off our electricity 
on a schedule. So you get 10 hours a day of no electricity. For everyone across the country? Across the country, 10 hours a day, you don't have electricity. Whether you're rich, right. poor, middle income. Middle. They just yeah. shut down. They say Fort Lauderdale, bang. They shut down Fort Lauderdale. Fort Lauderdale's right. gone from two to six. Now you California, think, are you listening? Now you think that, you think, <laughs> okay, next. you think that's cool. Like, okay, so no the studio doesn't have lights, so you don't have lights at home. The traffic lights don't work, which means that the traffic becomes, you can't go to a meeting because there's no traffic lights. The stores can't operate. So now you're asking for accountability. Let me tell you how this happens. There's no accountability. It just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and yeah. worse for the middle and lower class until something breaks. Yeah. When something breaks, how does the government respond? More money. Just makes it rain. What happens to the more money? Close yeah. to the top. We have a period like COVID where everyone has m more money. Yeah. The, 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 the people that don't know how to save, the ones that aren't capitalists, the ones that aren't successful, spend all their money. Of course. Mm -hmm. And the cream rises higher to the top and the people that are successful rise to the top. So all that, all that happens is there's no accountability. And what happens is the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. I've seen the extreme. You guys are living in the US. You're not in the extreme. I'm in South Africa. I see it. The rich are 0.1%. The poor are 99%, and the gap is huge. Mm -hmm. And I'm seeing the states do exactly the same thing. We're but on track. The rich are getting richer, yeah. the poor are getting poorer. We're on track. The only thing is you still have 24 hours of electricity. Just for now. For now. Let, Some states. Let's carry on. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes well, in California, you, need, you can't use water from time sometimes to time. Like you there, need, we've seen examples of Yeah, this. you need to be outside of something. You guys live it, but sometimes you need to be outside let's of something. Let's go to, to the go. next story. We've been on this story for a while. I'm going to go okay. to the next story, what Jamie Dimon said, and we'll comment on it as well. So Jamie Dimon warns U.S. debt default is potentially catastrophic, uh, asks J.P. Morgan, has a war room. Uh, he warned the U.S. debt default would be potentially catastrophic for the economy, emphasizing the urgency for Congress to raise the debt ceiling and avoid defaulting on financial obligations. Diamond expects panic in the markets if lawmakers fail to address the issue leading to volatility and potential problems in both the stock and treasury markets. He stressed the need for politicians to negotiate a deal and come to an agreement. He is preparing for the risk of a default by holding regular war room meetings, which will increase in frequency as the deadline approaches the standoff between Republicans and Democrats over the debt ceiling. Debt limit continues with Republicans seeking spending cuts and Democrats insisting on a clean debt ceiling bill. Tom, thoughts on this? Well, you know, we've been watching this for several years now, and it really seems like the potentially catastrophic debt ceiling is like the latest Avengers movie. We're going to have a whole lot of stress and a whole lot of things coming on, and then someone's going to save us. One day it's Spider-Man, the next day it's Ant-Man. Maybe this time it's time for Aquaman. But at the last minute, a deal gets cut, and Jamie Dimon is trying, he has seen the stalemate now going on between Kevin McCarthy and um, Joe Biden. And you notice that there were three different meetings that they had over the course of five days, and then it was all leaked out before McCarthy was in his limo. The White House was leaking out. Oh, McCarthy started yelling. They used the word yelling. Um, you mean yelling? No, I mean hollering. <laughs> <laughs> no, Janet wasn't there. You know, it, it was just it, they were hollering at each other, and they the White House leaked that out to make him look bad before he even had a chance to get to the microphone. And I know you both follow this. Know what I'm talking about. And I think what's about to happen is who's going to save it this time? And what Jamie Dimon is trying to do is push forward to get them to come together and to, to agree for the... Who has leverage? Who has more leverage right now? The question becomes, who has more leverage? Who truly is going to wait till last second? Who's got bigger balls? And who is more worried about this hurting their re-election? You know, any of that stuff. Those are real questions we got to answer. I, I, think, I think right now, McCarthy has cards. He knows it because it's a bigger election for the Dems because they could lose the White House that they have. So right now, I think McCarthy has the ability to go that 5% further and get them to blink on his terms. But make no mistake, the debt ceiling's going up. It's just going to be what other concessions are underneath that 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 deal what's what i think what we're watching there is a marketing campaign for a game of chicken that's what it is you've had the two marketing campaigners that have come out in the last couple of weeks janet yellen has come out and panicked everybody about what's going to happen if the debt ceiling does isn't doesn't get raised she's been on every single tv station and the next pawn in the marketing campaign is jamie Dimon. but ultimately i think everyone knows american or non-american knows that they're not going to default on their debt the u.s isn't going to default on their debt it's a negotiating tactic. It's a negotiating play between the Dems and the Republicans. And I think I'm in the same camp as you, where I think McCarthy's got 5% more, and that's mm -hmm. it. That's, that's where it ends.
The I, U.S. I ain't going to default. Yeah, I don't follow the politics too much. But from a macro standpoint, uh, I don't usually say this, but I actually agree with Jamie Dimon. I think he's understating it. Uh, if they default on those T-bills, you, you, you got Mad Max. Let me put it to you this way. I had my two-hour uh, quarterly meeting with my Goldman Sachs guy before this meeting. He flew in. We had the dinner, lunch at the house, and we talked about it. And their position was to move money out of certain bonds because they're not fully sure for now on what's going to happen between May, June, maybe July, we revisit. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Goldman's taking that position? Yeah. Why is Goldman taking that position? You never know. In the history of the last 100 years, only six countries have defaulted. And we've never defaulted. Like Russia, Argentina, Germany, Argentina, what is Greece, it? Lebanon, Greece, Greece yeah. Venezuela. It's really those six have defaulted. Okay. You guys are thinking we may be one? No, we're not saying we are. We just think we have to be ready. Okay. So then you hear, you know, the, the numbers comes out on how much we have in our treasury general account, right? Uh, our GDP right now is $23.5 trillion, but we only have $200 billion in that account. That's like somebody making two thirty nine dollars a year, $239,000 a year, and you got 200 bucks in savings. That's America today. Okay. That's current America's financial situation. $200 billion sounds like a lot of money. We don't have a lot of money. But for me, this is what it's going to come down to. I don't remember when the whole midterms was going back and forth and they thought it was going to be a red wave and McCarthy thought he wasn't going to need anybody from the MAGA camp. It's like, I don't give a shit what those guys say. We can do whatever we want to do to them. And they're like, oh, that's how you talk to us behind closed doors? No problem. It's not a red wave. So guess who you need to negotiate with? You need to negotiate with the guy you hate the most. What's his name? Matt, Matt Gates. Gates. I'm right here. Let's negotiate. You got to call Trump. Last minute here, call him. He's got on the phone, all this stuff. Because Trump is a ball-busting negotiator that's willing to use the threats. Like the whole thing in the CNN town hall that he says, so, you know, when you were president, you said this. And, and then, I was, yeah, that's when I was president. But what's the difference between now? Because I'm not the president, <laughs> not president. Today, right? Because he <laughs> yeah. knows how to use leverage. Does McCarthy have that kind of backbone to really negotiate and get everything he wants? I don't know if he has that kind of backbone, quite frankly. Based on what you hear from a lot of different people, he's more part of the you know, swamp camp than some of these other guys are because you know, they're all negotiating with each other. What ends up happening here you know, at the end of the day, of course they're going to end up figuring out a way not to default. You heard Trump said, let them default. Let them go through it. Yeah. That, that's, that's the DNA of a negotiator that's willing to go all the way to say, no problem. Let's go ahead and do it. Because in reality, is, let's just say they do default, okay? Who loses? Well, can you, uh, President Biden, can you imagine? Because of Congress, because of Congress, because of con- Congress is the reason why we default. And if it wasn't for Congress, President Biden, 100 years from now, when history books write who defaulted, no one's going to say Congress because ain't no one going to remember McCarthy unless if he becomes a president. They're going to say there was a president. They call him the worst president of all time, second to Jimmy Carter, and he beat Jimmy Carter. His name is Joe Biden. Son, 100 years ago, this guy was the president that defaulted. The concern of putting the fear on Congress, Congress should not be afraid right now. Congress should sit there and say, it's kind of like the movie Air. I don't know if you've seen a movie Air with Michael Jordan and Ben Affleck is playing the role and Sonny is played by Matt Damon. And Matt Damon sits down in the boardroom and is having this conversation with Michael and says, Michael, let's face it, no one's going to remember us. Mm -hmm. Everyone's going to remember you. They're going to remember your story. They're going to tell movies. You, they're going to do this to you. They're gonna, but no one's going to remember us. We're not going to remember it. Congress is not going to remember it. president's going to remember it. Congress has to know it. They have the leverage. If they're able to negotiate accordingly with that, then they can get a lot of things done, especially with accountability. If not, it's going to be another, hey, we need a few more trillion dollars. Oh, okay, here we go. Can we go to the same bar together? Yes. Help me out with my reelection bid to make it a little bit easier next time in case Trump wins. That's the stuff that's going to happen. I hope I'm wrong. I hope they stay strong because I think the leverage today is with Congress. It's just we'll, we'll see if McCarthy is a good negotiator. Maybe McCarthy needs to, in the next 24 to 48 hours, take a break from everybody and read a book called Art of the Deal. That this guy who was a good business guy back in the days, then, you know, yeah. things changed. I, I, you said I, there who, was who six. Who wrote Art of the Deal? Who, who was this, this one Trump. guy, what's his Trump. name? Donald Trump. Yeah, D- yeah, yeah. DJ, DJ Pat, you Trump. said there were six countries that have defaulted yeah. on their debt, right? I think that was Argentina five. Was Ar- okay. Argentina, Greece. Argentina's done it five okay, gotcha. times. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a little naive of a question yeah. because we've never done it in the United States. Walk me through what happens if we do default on our loan. Like, I think Tom had a great analogy where it's, it's almost like a Marvel movie. They come in at the last minute, but let's 
let's say there's no one to save you. Superman it's doesn't different. swoop in and save Lois Lane. What happens in America? It's different when it's the U.S. So when Argentina defaulted or when Greece defaulted, okay, it's a small country, third world country defaulting on its debt. But you think about all the countries holding U.S. sovereign debt on their balance sheets, mm-hmm. and it becomes a cataclysmic worldwide event. And that's bigger why than that. it's bigger than it's, that. You know what? If the U.S. missed the de- miss one payment. The discussion that he had with Goldman is is irrelevant because it means that everything goes to zero. So it's not going to happen. You know, you know what it is? It's like if the aliens invade Earth, mm-hmm. I have a feeling that Russia and Ukraine will fight the aliens together. You know, it's that kind of like, <sighs> yeah, right. you're, talking about, you're talking about something that's so big and so macro that if it happens, yeah. everybody will fight together to make sure the Democrats and the Republicans will become best friends in making sure that it doesn't happen. When the aliens show up. But, uh, well, I'm just saying... And George, you use the, uh, you use the yeah. Mad Max analogy. Yeah, because I, I think it's even... Wor- so he's saying that all of these uh, uh, global governments have these T-bills as an example on their balance sheet. So first and foremost, you have to differentiate. Are you talking about defaulting on payments, like they just have to close down some parks and stuff? Or are you talking about default that these uh, T-bills are maturing and they literally can't pay back their T-bills because those are two completely separate questions. So let's just go down that path that for whatever reason, the U.S. says, okay, we're not paying back our, our T-bills. Those T-bills that you have that are maturing, sure. you can go ahead and pound sand. So not only are they on the balance sheet of these central banks, but more importantly, they're the underpinning of the global monetary system. So let's go back to 2008. The problem that you had, the main problem, is that the global monetary system was using two main forms of collateral, mortgage-backed securities and Mm T-bills. And all of a sudden they woke up one morning and they saw, oh, you know what? These mortgage-backed securities, they're not good as collateral. They're not 100 cents on the dollar. And then you have the whole monetary system implode, which gives us the GFC. Now we've got one form of collateral. That would be those T-bills. So if you take out that Jenga piece, that's the last one. Now, and who knows, if it's one day, will that Jenga piece come out? I don't know. But, but you don't want to play that game. And going back to his point, which was very good, I think in that type of situation, everyone's going to be on the same side because they're going to get, be getting so many calls. They're going to be getting calls from Jamie Dimon. If you're McCarthy, from, would you take it to that level? Well, well, I don't know how much he understands the global monetary system, but he's going to be getting calls from every single world leader saying, you better do this because you don't understand what, the fire that you're playing with right now. If I was McCarthy, I'd definitely play that card because, as you said, he's got less to lose because the reputation, the reputation is on Biden. No one's going to, you said it, you said it in, in the, you know, presidents are presidents because they want to do good and they want to be remembered as being presidents that do good. And no president wants to go down as the worst president in history. Right. And I don't think that, that I think the Democrats have just got, I think Biden's got much more to lose. And I, I think to your point, McCarthy's got 5% yeah. more. And that could be the risk <laughs> yeah. that the bond market is pricing it, in. If I have, if I have six bullets in a battle and you've got five, I've got more shots than you. Yeah. But if I can bluff you. To scare the crap out of you. There's no bluff. The cards all on the table. Oh well, no, no. So, so, so here's here's what's in the game they're in, in the world of politics, dude. The way they use ways to put the fear of death in you is very different than capitalism. In capitalism, someone's going to say, I'm going to recruit away your best talent, and I'm going to take your best customers, and I'm going to open up an office right across the street from you. We got to compete, right? In politics, you want to do that? Do you want us to release that story about you 17 years ago? Do, do you want mainstream media come and talk about Gina? Who's Gina? You don't remember Gina in college, second year? Yes, you, yeah. you want me to tell you about Gina, <laughs> Kevin? Oh, you forgot about Gina? No problem. Hey, keep doing that, buddy. Tomorrow, everyone's going to know about this girl named Gina. Yeah. By the way, there's no such thing as a girl with Kevin McCarthy and Gina. I'm just making, I don't want people to put Or is there? Or Gina, is there? Right? Yeah. That's kind of how dirty Kevin, you're listening up. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll, we'll mm. see what happened there. The reality is, if it does, you're talking about our currency is going to be devalued. You're talking about global catastrophic events with mm-hmm. economy. It's going to be catastrophic at the highest level. Yeah. If so I we think a more, uh, maybe you move a, to yeah, the next global I, I think, reserve currency yeah. real quick. It's I the, think maybe an, int- uh, an interesting question would be, okay, let's just assume that the, they do fix the problem of the debt ceiling. If they extend it, then what happens? Because to Pat's earlier point, the TGA right now only has, I think it's even less than $200 billion. Yeah. But Janet has come out and said that she would like to see five or $600 billion in there. So let's assume that they get this thing resolved. Yeah. And Janet Yellen goes straight out to the market 
and says, here's $500 billion worth of treasuries. Increase liquidity. So then what does that do? You know, what does that do to interest rates if there's not enough buyers out there for those treasuries? Does she scale that in? Does she issue all of the uh, debt at the front end of the curve where there is a lot more demand? And then that you then you bring down the average maturity of that $32 trillion in debt to, you know, from two years down to like one year, then they're much more uh, then the short term interest rates impacts their budget, the, the Treasury, the federal mm-hmm. government, much, uh, much more than it did before they're, they're, you can literally see them painting themselves into a corner in real time let me ask you let me ask you another question if if in the unlikely event that there is a, a default what assets would you be wanting to hold on the day of the default bullets okay. <laughs> I, I, no, I agree I agree I agree because I've seen this I agree bullets is a great one I see this Zimbabwe is just it's, it's one of our neighbors mm. I've watched the currency go from something to zero in a matter of weeks you want to own bullets you want to own property because a house and a property always has value you want to hold gold yep, yep, yep. and then to me you would probably want to hold digital gold i'm not pushing the crypto narrative but if there is a default then there's not going to be a default the, the chance is zero comma zero 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 one you got to start thinking what are the assets that you actually want to be holding mm-hmm. so but you're saying there's still a chance though i'll play devil's advocate here and i'd say that you want to hold dollars as well uh, dollars? Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. No. Yeah. Yeah. People yeah. will be dumping their tables. Mm. Okay, fine. So you're looking at the asset side of the balance sheet. Look at the liability side. So all those dollars. Let's say there's a hundred trillion dollars in the world right now, which is probably a, a close fair point. Number. Okay, so you got asset, but how did that hundred trillion come into existence through debt? So you still got to pay back that hundred trillion. It's a fair so point. Even if you want to dump those, someone else is picking them up. You've still got the exact same amount of future demand for those dollars. You see, it's just like you, Adam. Let's say you've got a million-dollar mortgage right now that's denominated in dollars. And you say, you know what, Pat? I really don't like what's going on with the dollar. I want you to go ahead and pay me in Bitcoin or pay me in gold or Russian rubles or the new BRICS currency. That's fine. But at the end of the month, you still got to come up with dollars to pay your mortgage. You see? And what happens is if the world economy collapses, so do banks. There's no liquidity and there's no dollars in order to pay back all of those loans that are due at the end of the month. And you have a rush to dollars, and you see it spike from 101 on the DXY up to 120, 130, 140. It's almost like a short squeeze on the dollar, and that could be just as disruptive sure, yeah. as, the, as the, um, uh, the, the default on the debt.